This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 502 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Jeremiah Wilbur. Now, I wanted to bring you a guest who, again, has not only been in Iraq, been in Afghanistan, and Jeremiah is a Green Beret veteran, but also someone who could articulate the many layers that are contributing to some of the mental and emotional health challenges of some of our veterans, especially after we see a withdrawal from a country and there's this perception that all that work, all those lives lost was for nothing, the guilt of the people that we've left behind. And as I record this intro at the moment, I know some of my guests are actually en route to Afghanistan to help evacuate some of those men and women and children. So we discuss a host of topics from his family background, Native Americans, life on reservations, his entry into the military, and then some of the factors that come into some of the challenges that we see, the acknowledgement of the industrial military complex, the fact that there are companies that are making a lot of money out of our veterans, out of combat, out of war, the treatment options for some of our veterans when they get home, the power of plant medicine, for example, and so many other areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier, easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes now. 
So all I ask is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jeremiah Wilbur. Enjoy. Well, Jeremy, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time so quickly to come on the show. I saw your your name will be mentioned in in the past when I ask about other people to come on the show, um, and I we were following each other on on uh, social media, and I uh, I saw a very emotional video that you made uh, recently. So we're going to get into that later in this conversation. But you know, we I reached out to you. You said yes immediately, and we put this out because I think it's an important important conversation for many many different layers but especially for the veteran population at the moment to hear so that so welcome to the show thank you for having me appreciate that so very first question where on planet earth are we finding you today um so today i am in uh, parker colorado that's where um that's where my wife and i live uh we just kind of stayed in colorado after i retired from the army beautiful all right so i love to start at the very beginning and you got an interesting kind of diverse uh culture to your family dynamic so tell me where you were born and then tell me about your mom and dad you know how many siblings and, and what your parents actually did okay right on <clears throat> so i'm originally from ennis montana um my my mother is uh muscularo apache by blood uh she's kind of a product of the catholic boarding school system and then adopted and raised a Cinnabon. So that's where the kind of the Montana thing <clears throat> comes into play. And then my dad was originally from San Diego. And uh, when he got out of the army, he uh, moved to Montana um, just to, you know, to work and that ended up being cowboy work. Um, so my dad was basically a cowhand uh, when I was a kid growing up. And my mom, um, we lived very small town in Montana. So my mom was kind of, find work where she could. A lot of it was <clears throat> working on the ranch. And then she also did a lot of modeling. Um, so if you look at my Instagram, a lot of those pictures of native women or, or there, or you see that I'm showcasing my mother. Um, so a lot of the old postcards, some really famous Western artists back in the day painted my mom a lot. So that was pretty cool. Um, so I lived in Ennis, Montana until I was about um, 10. And then my dad, um, decided to go back to school. So when he went to school, that's when we were on Fort Belknap and, uh, and outside of Haber, Montana <clears throat> and, um, got more into, uh, native culture and just learning from the elders and being around my mother during that time. And then as soon as my dad graduated, um, nursing school, his dream was basically become a flight nurse. So, um, we, we spent uh, a couple years in Montana and then, when I was, uh, I want to say seventh grade, seventh or eighth grade, we moved to um, Las Vegas. <clears throat> so my dad ended up getting his dream job. And that's kind of what took us to Las Vegas. Uh, went to junior high and high school there. And then um, right after high school, I um, joined the Army. And when I first joined the Army, I was a, I was an MP. So um, I did that for um, about eight years. Um, the first six years, just kind of a regular MP I worked on the SWAT team and did some other things. Um, I did a deployment to Iraq as a squad leader. So I spent from uh, November 05 to November 06 in Iraq. 
Um, and then I was a drill sergeant uh, for two years, and that was kind of one of my favorite times in the Army, you know, being a drill sergeant. And then um, from there, I went to selection and, you know, decided I wanted to be special forces, so I went to selection. And uh, then I was assigned to a third special forces group um, as an 18 Echo, which is a uh, special forces communication sergeant. Um, kind of the abridged version, I did um, a couple combat rotations with third special forces group to uh, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, or should I say Afghanistan and Iraq, because I have multiples in Afghanistan. Um, <clears throat> and then my last four years in the army, I transferred to 10th special forces group where um, I was working at the, um, underneath the special operations non-nearing center, as well as I was a team sergeant. And there my job was to counter Russian aggression above the Arctic circle. Uh, and then my instructor time in 10th group, kind of that re retirement gig, if you will, underneath the mountain locker was um, teaching Arctic warfare. So <clears throat> kind of a bridge version of my military career, lots of things in between that. Um, but that's where I have some of the experience when it comes to Iraq, um, Afghanistan. And then again, you know, that counter Russian piece, um, kind of where I pick up my passion for skiing and mountaineering again, um, and where I learned all the Arctic warfare stuff. So <clears throat> beautiful. Well, um, that was an abridged version. I appreciate it, but I'm going to go back and pick it apart anyway, because <laughs> that's what I do no worries, no so, <laughs> in, in a positive way. So starting at the very beginning, one of the conversations you don't hear much about, and it's funny because when I was a little English schoolboy, one of our history blocks that we learned in England was Western, you know, American history. And we learned about Native Americans and, you know, the, the settlers and all that kind of thing. So when I first came over here, people were like, oh, you know, England's so amazing. We don't have any history here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's some people here, you know, yeah. that, that have been here for quite a while. But um, but it's such a beautiful culture. And I had like Sebastian Junger on. He, he talks all about the Iroquois and other cultures and how, you know, some of the Western settlers went to to those you know those groups to live because their quality of life was better there so some really interesting kind of you know stories and background so starting at the very beginning tell me about you know what with, with the the background that your mother had what the the apache culture is like because i know there's different tribes and but but comparing to you know average americans so so you know, an Apache mother in, you know, the, the yeah. mid last century, what that looks like. <laughs> so, um, I guess I could go into a little bit more of, of my family history. So my, in the 1930s, um, early 1930s, my grandmother, she was the oldest of eight kids <clears throat> and her and all her siblings were sent to, um, a Spanish mission boarding school. So it was Catholic boarding school. Um, and it's, I don't know why it's kind of low key in the news and on social media, <clears throat> unless you follow certain pages, but you can see a lot of things where they're finding all the dead bodies and, and digging up the babies of uh, all these native kids or indigenous um, people in Canada and in North and in uh, North America. So anyway, <clears throat> so there's a lot of natives that were kind of caught up in that boarding school system. And that's where we like the term whitewashing comes from um, where they're basically trying to take the native kids they don't allow you to speak your native language. They cut your hair. They want you to basically inculcate into what they thought was modern society. <clears throat> so 
you had some that were ran by whites, and then you had some ran by the by the Spanish or the Mexicans. So, in the south um, southwest of the United States, where my grandmother originally from, New Mexico, and my and my grandfather, um, <clears throat> they would try to make a lot of the natives um, inculcate them into like Mexican American culture. So there's a lot of natives you'll find that are Apache and Navajo. They're from the um, southwest part of the country that have Hispanic last names. For instance, my grandmother's last name was Torres and my grandfather's last name, um, <clears throat> my, grass, gram, excuse me, my grandfather's last name um, was Cordova. Um, they don't know their previous, you know, their native last name or what that was going to be. Um, but anyway, so that's just kind of a look into that because my mother, my, my family, they knew they were Apache. So we call it Apache Rio because it's this really long swath and it does have a lot of Spanish history, a lot of uh, Mexican Span Spanish history mixed into that. So my typical upbringing um, was more of like a Mexican kid, like a Mexican American kid, other than some of the foods a little bit different. We did eat fry bread, you know, your typical native American style of food. And then <clears throat> When my mother was in her early 20s, she moved out to Montana. And then because of the way she looked, she's distinctly very Native. And she met um, an elder by the name of Harris Rock. And he basically took her under his wing and adopted her as his daughter. And then that's, and he's a Cinnaboyne. And so most of the Native traditions I learned or did as a kid growing up were all Cinnaboyne traditions. I don't really know that much about Apache culture. Um, in my adult life now, and I would say in the last like five years, I'm really getting into that, uh, whether that's through friends I've met and going to powwows and just kind of hanging out with different people that are Apache. So um, my upbringing is a little bit more of kind of a Mexican-American uh, mixed with uh, like a Sioux Indian. But Interesting. Yeah, my son is actually part Cherokee. So my, yeah, his mother, my, my ex-wife, I want to say... It was, you know, like three generations back, but it was, you know, it was pure on the one side. Um, and he's got these big brown eyes, his high cheekbones. It even it was kind of funny when he was like two, I think, year and a half, two. I was at the fire station. He got sick and my uh, ex took him to the pediatrician. It wasn't the normal doctor. So they had a, a different one. And she calls me in tears and said, um, you know, the doctor says he's got Down syndrome. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, a, you know, a year and a half. If he had yeah, Down syndrome, yeah. we sure, sure as hell know. But again, the term mongoloid, you know, comes from the Mongol cultures where you have the different eyelids and the high cheekbones. And they obviously came over the land bridge and became what we know as, you know, many of the Native Americans. So, and he just would not accept that. So I said, just take my child, leave that fucking place. And, you know, we'll go back and see our regular doctor. But, but yeah, so he has Native American blood as well now one of my canadian friends talked to me recently about the same thing as you mentioned in canada so for me and everyone listening give me some background into you know the the dark side of what you were talking about and mass graves and, and all the things that are starting to be uncovered and as you as you mentioned not very well uh, reported at the moment yeah unfortunately it's not very well reported um and it's just basically you know kind of the horror stories you would think of at a um, you know, 1920s third through, or I would say, you know, it's actually late 1800s up until um, around the 1970s, I think, um, was kind of the last time. But <clears throat> Catholic nuns, you know, where the, the worst you'd hear is, you know, I'm smacking you on the hand with a ruler or something. Um, but it's that kind of, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a movie I have in my head where the nun's kind of a, a jackass, you know, and, and, and mean to all the students. But uh, 
it's that times a thousand, you know? So they would do things like if, if left-handed was from the devil, so they would tie their right hand up. Um, there was a lot of uh, grooming, obviously pedophilia uh, and child abuse. So a lot of the graves itself are come from child abuse where they actually just <clears throat> abuse a child so much that they died. Um, neglected, malnourished, you know, you, you name it. Um, didn't want to feed because a lot, a lot of these, a lot of the ones that are finding their babies. So <clears throat> you can imagine they're probably taken away from their mother and then wouldn't drink milk from the surrogate or whatever the case is. And they end up dying. So um, obviously atrocity. And, it, and a lot of people think it just stopped once natives went to the Indian reservations, um, but it didn't. So <clears throat> that's where you're finding in Canada's reporting on it very well. I would say Canada compared to the United States does a much better job of talking about the First Nations people <clears throat> and um, talking about the issue of how many girls and women you know, are missing and murdered every year in Canada. Whereas in the United States, um, we don't really talk about that at all. We, we, we also, you know, it's, it's weird to me, the United States doesn't even really talk about um, pedophilia or child sex trafficking, um, any of that stuff. You know, it, it's very, very weird. Um, we, we're, we assume, you know, the, the prostitute or the, or that's the perpetrator, right? Like we're in our country, it's like, we're, we arrest the prostitute. Like, okay. That, uh, that you're, that's not very smart, you know, like it's not how it works. Um, so most Americans view on sex trafficking and sex work, um, they're, they really don't understand sex trafficking because no one talks about it. It's not in the media and then sex work they we just blame it on the woman and, you know, think she's you know, ho, and she's just selling her body for, for money. Um, yeah. And I've, I've had guests that were sex trafficked on. There's one from Hungary to Mianaj, um, very powerful story. And she was basically tricked into going to Canada, ironically. That's where she was actually trafficked. Um, you know, and then many, many of the responders, many of the members of the military were victims of pedophilia. You know, so many of them had a guy on who's behind the, the, um, YouTube and Instagram, uh, McDojo. And one of his big things is exposing pedophilia in martial arts, you know. So it's it's crazy because it's such a huge thing and, and protecting our children should be number one. But as we will get into later, you know, our, our TVs are, are jammed with polarizing shit that, you know, most of which actually doesn't matter because they're missing the core, whether it's people dying, whether it's, you know, mental health in the military and, you know, and then so you said topics like this. If, uh, a pseudo genocide um, going on in our schoolhouses is is not only something that we should know about, but it just as you know, Auschwitz has museums now. We should be responsible and and making sure that history doesn't repeat itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, <clears throat> just that whole topic, making sure history doesn't repeat itself. I feel like you know, the last few years in our country, that's been just a common theme. You know. <clears throat> looking at where we're going and you can tie that with everything, whether that's any constitutional right, you know, first amendment, second amendment, what have you, you know, it's one of those things where we don't study history, understand it. We let it repeat itself. And you, and, and in my opinion, studying what we did to, um, as not going to say what we did as a country, but just kind of the Western expansion. And when you look at native Americans and how we, how, um, how Indians were put on Indian reservations and then given certain entitlements, uh, basically government dependency. And you look at that history, you know, you take that from 
obviously if you start out east, it starts earlier than the mid 1800s. But you look at like that period of 1800s, all the broken treaties, and then how they were treated on Indian reservations, and you apply that what's going on today. I can see a lot of similarities, you know. And something funny, I, I'll throw that that meme up all the time, and or or just talk about it. And it's like it's a meme of Crazy Horse, and he's sitting on his horse with his rifle, and it says, uh, "Give up your guns, trust the government." That worked out well for us, you know. And, and it's just something that's just true to me, the, the way I feel. Um, it hits home a little bit easier for me because of my mother and my mother's side of the family. But um, that statement, I feel like, you know, we don't study history to repeat itself is, is so underrated right now and, and underutilized. Yeah, I think a lot of the uh, Im- immigration memes that use Native Americans are also very pertinent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before we get to, you know, move forward on, on your timeline, one more thing. I've had... Um, I think they've all been law enforcement officers, but a couple of guys that both actually were, were wounded in the line of duty, but they were both working on reservations and they talked to the poverty and, you know, the, the crime and that kind of thing. So with a, with a broad brush, what are you seeing in, in the reservations? Cause we don't, the only thing that I think is, is kind of front and center in some reservations and we have it here in, um, in Florida at casinos. Which, of course, for whoever owns the casino, I'm sure it's a great thing, you know. But so just like Ayers Rock, when I went and visited and there were no Aboriginals to be found anywhere, you know, what what is the real world like behind the curtain with a, a lot of these reservations? Um, I would say, first off, the casino part. Um, most people think of, of casinos on Indian reservations just because and most of those are on on any reservations that have a lot of access so if you're in florida or you're in detroit or somewhere like you're next to big cities of course you're going to see a, a casino and then you think there's a bunch of revenue well there, there might be revenue it's uh, you know there's indian casinos in, in san diego county that are just crushing you know so yes there are however um there's a lot of well i would say most indian reservations especially in the west are in the middle of nowhere you know, there's no jobs. There's no, there's no, there's nothing going on there. Um, a lot of those ones, even they might even have casinos on them. And it's basically kind of a, a tool to try to do revenue um, because the Indian reservations are almost like a sovereign country. They don't fall under a lot of the same rules and regulations that the state does. So they can do more federal, um, federal rules and federal laws. So that's where you see like the Indian reservations. Um, but what I tell people is I'm like, think of whatever city you're from or the biggest city you've ever been to, you know, that you actually lived in or, or, or kind of know it well. So if you take like, you know, East St. Louis or Southside Chicago, the poverty and what you see there is the exact same thing that you would see on the Navajo reservation in New Mexico and um, Utah and Arizona. So, or, or, you know, you name it, Crow Heart, Wyoming, it's, it's, it's just more spread out. It's a lot of trailers, um, dirt roads, trailers. There's not a lot of paved roads on any reservations. <clears throat> um, there's actually that a pretty good show out now on Hulu called uh, Reservation Dogs. And it's kind of a comedy. They do a lot of kind of play on and uh, pun stuff or what have you, you know, just kind of making fun of the res. But they do a very good job of kind of showing res life, showing the poverty in res life, what it's like for kids to grow up there, um, as well as some kind of joking around what white people say, you know, or what we what we hear or what I hear from people. And you're just this is kind of funny because um, I really don't know the analogy or how to compare it. But I would say for you, you know, you're 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 from the UK. 
So if you just think of like how someone you you start speaking or one of your buddies at the firehouse or whatever, and they're like, oh, they start acting like they have an accent or, you know, saying puppet or muppets or cunt or whatever, trying to be funny with you. And, and you know, they say things to you and you're kind of like, that's not how it is at all. <laughs> Um, so that's kind of what I, what my analogy is to what a lot of Americans think, um, natives are, if you will. Um, for instance, even the look, you know, um, people will be like, well, how do, why do you like, for me, I have a really thick beard and yes, my dad is white. Um, but he doesn't have that. And what I explain to people is like through a lot of, even a lot of native kids, younger kids, we forget that. We always want to take the Western expansion and think it's all these white people migrating West. Right. And we, and we think the cavalry, yeah, you know, general Custer and we have all these cavalry wars, all everyone knows about. Well, what happened a couple hundred years before that was the Spaniards marched from Guatemala to Canada. Most of the natives were killed by sickness and disease. So, we, so, you know, then they, then the conquistadors are marching, but a lot of people don't forget, you have to understand Spain history as well, Spanish history. They were conquered by the Moors. They had a lot of North African, Black. Um, so people are thinking that these white Europeans marched through our continent. When No, they didn't. They were a, a mixed race. Uh, I would they, I would you know probably say most of the conquistadors were probably a darker skin, Northern African or Moors. Those were a lot of the warriors and the strongest guys came from, from Spain because they were conquered by the Moors and by the Northern Africans. So if you take that in perspective and now you look at a lot of natives, especially like Navajo, they have a lot of facial hair, Apache have things, you know, so there, there was even some Indians that would grow stuff out just because it was kind of a white trait, they thought, you know, and, and uh, like Mangus, Colorado, his re- hairline was receding a little bit. So he'd wear his warp on it a little bit farther back because he was like a quarter white, quarter French. Uh, and he kind of wanted to showcase that like, yeah, I'm what I'm white, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think that's something that a lot of Americans forget, a lot of natives forget, um, you know, when that's where you can see different bloodlines and different things kind of mixing together to make what somebody looks like. So I think a lot of times Americans, we have this very iconic, um, you know, Northern Cheyenne Sioux kind of look that we think about when we think of natives. Um, where in reality, you know, each native is different. Some are shorter, some are a lot taller, some are, you know, kind of short, stocky, round dudes, some are, you know, really tall, lanky guys. And that's just because of, you know, where they lived at, what they did, what their specialty was. Yeah, you see, it's interesting as well, because as a comparison, you know, people think of the UK as as white, and you look at our history, you know, and it, it's not so much from the African nations, but the Gauls, which is in France, you know, the the Vikings, the Danes, I mean, you name it, we were raped and pillaged over and over and over again. So then when I look at my people, and you know, they're fighting over being Welsh or Scottish or English or Irish, I'm like, the fuck is wrong with you? We're two tiny rocks that just got brutalized for generations. And now we're fighting amongst each other. So yeah, but it is an interesting thing. Like what it, what is pure you know and so you look at this whole like Aryan thing of world war ii like it's a complete facade we're all mutts you know dating back to whatever you believe either a couple of people in biblical times or you know evolving from apes but either way you know we're all a mix of you know all these beautiful cultures yeah i agree all right well then one more thing before we we transition because we touched on this before the the um impact of covid on the uh the reservations because i've heard this before you know when we have 
you know, poverty and we have, you know, multi-generations living in household, there's always different elements. It contributes to, in my opinion, a higher, you know, mortality and morbidity rate with this particular disease. What are you seeing in the reservations? Um, yeah, so the reservations definitely got hit hard and the more rural ones even hit harder. Um, the one thing I think, you know, we're, um, United States is like the only country in, um, in the world that, uh, <clears throat> where obesity is associated with poverty. So, and it's weird, you know, other places, you know, around the world, it's like, if you, if you're poor, you don't eat where in the United States, whether that's education, food choices, just who knows what it is because I'm a firm believer in it doesn't, it doesn't cost a lot of money healthy, you know, rice and beans are, are very, very cheap and they're very healthy. Uh, but anyway, so when you look at that, you take that as a whole, you can kind of apply that to all the poverty stricken areas in our country. And you look at COVID and um, my assumption would be, they would probably relate, you know, the poorest counties in the country <clears throat> probably have a higher COVID rate. Uh, a lot of it's probably due to nutrition and just overall health of individuals. So natives typically are um, fat, overweight, diabetes. Uh, and when you look at why, if you back up to when they're put in the Indian reservation, you take a people that's primarily, uh, when people say hunter gatherer, the term, the, the word gatherer is very loose, right? Because if you've ever been in the woods, you can only eat something when it grows and when it's ripe. So gathering wasn't super common. Some Indians did very good with seed and corn, you know, uh, and, and, and whatnot. But for the most part, you're taking a, a, a generation of people that were primarily carnivore and lived off buffalo, lived off game meat. And then you take them to the Indian reservation, you give them sugar, flour, all these other things. So this is where you see the, the Native American diet. Nowadays, like fry bread, you know, it's, it's the joke, fry bread power. Like everyone makes fry bread. It's amazing. It's super good, but it's all shit that's not good for you. You know, it's just flour, sugar, baking soda, and oils um, and fried. So it's like that diet is kind of made everybody where they're, where they're overweight and have diabetes. Um, also, uh, as we were talking before, the, the Navajo res got hit really hard. Um, they have a big population. They're the biggest reservation and they have the, the highest um, uh, population as well. And there's a lot of places that don't have running water, you know, the dirt roads, no running water, multifamily households living in a, in a trailer with no running water. So I think those are some, are some factors to add. Um, I'm not a doctor, not a scientist, but I'm sure if, you know, somebody was looking into that, they could say, yeah, that, you know, that those are definitely factors for the Indian reservations. Yeah. What about smoking? I mean, again, I might be thinking of a caricature in my head, but when I think of smoking, I think of some of the rituals and, and smoking's involved. Is, uh, is that still popular in, on the reservations? Um, yeah. So obviously like peace pipe, tobacco, tobacco is very spiritual, um, uh, meaning. Um, so yeah, but, but I would say, um, I don't know how popular actual smoking cigarettes is on the Indian reservation. Um, a lot of my native friends don't, I don't it doesn't seem super common to smoke. Uh, but you know, it is, you know, who knows if that's, if that's a factor, but yes, but, but as far as, um, tradition goes and, you know, doing the sweats and things like that and, and, and using tobacco and ceremony, uh, that's still very, very common, very popular. But, but again, that's more of like, you know, me and you hanging out smoking a cigar on a, on a Friday night. It's, it's not like, you know, so 20 I don't know the stats on the cigarettes. Yeah. But I would assume it. 
Okay. Well, then while we're on the, the COVID subject, then, you know, coming forward to, to where you are now in your, your, your lens with rural America, I'm about to bring a friend of mine on who's in Texas. He's in the ER. Um, he's a physician who's been on a couple of times. And, uh, you know, he, through his lens there, you know, it, they're in crisis again. They run out of vents. It's, it's horrendous. But, you know, we're, we're an enormous state, you know, two and a half thousand miles across. So what is, you were talking earlier about the kind of rural perspective. What, are, what are you seeing from the rural side? So I would say the one thing I have with COVID that seems weird to me is um, for the most part, people's political leanings are how they feel about COVID. So when you're in very red areas, uh, which tends to be rural, COVID is like, there's no, I, we did, there was no masks, you know, like out where I, where I live or when I'm working in Wyoming and Montana, you can go in anywhere and no one, if you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. No one's going to tell you to put one on if you come in their store. And this was during the height of COVID, you know, all summer long, all winter long. Um, so it's kind of weird that like the rural areas, um, you know, even when they say they were getting hit hard, you know, I, I work, I do a lot of guiding and outfitting out, out of uh, Dubois, Wyoming. And Dubois got hit pretty decent, but they didn't have a lot of uh, deaths or people needed to be hospitalized and whatnot. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know why it's like that. I'm not saying that it's that it's fake, definitely. Um, I just think maybe in some of those city centers or those heavily populated areas, yeah, there's a higher concentration of people. They're not getting outdoors enough. Uh, a lot of people in the rural area tend to have jobs where they actually work outside and do things all day. So they're outdoors. Maybe the spread is a little bit different because they're outside all the time. We know that um, you know through science, right, uh, that being outdoors is one of the one of the mitigating factors that helps not spread COVID. So I would say that probably has something to do with it. Um, whereas people in the city centers are typically in buildings all the time and kind of go from their car to buildings, car to buildings, and and uh, could spend their entire you know spend months like that. Um, and then I don't know, maybe being the fat, the fat, I feel like all the comorbidities, when you look at the comorbidities of COVID, just the percentage of it, it's, it's ridiculous. I think it's like high seventies for, for people that are considered obese. Yeah. Yeah. And you look actually our, our country is 70% uh, obese or overweight, which is, you know, yeah. crazy, but um, yeah, it's important for us to hear these different perspectives because I mean, yeah, New York city, obviously we, we stack humans, you know, tens and tens and tens of stories high where you know you're you work in a ranch in wyoming well obviously it's a totally different yeah, dynamic exactly. but as you said i mean yeah. one of the things that drove me crazy with this is a lot of us were told to stay indoors well yeah. you know fresh air and sunshine boosts the immune system why the hell would you stay indoors you know what i mean i get it don't go to a rave and lick everyone's face if you're in a city and, and it's you know <laughs> overwhelming the healthcare system but but it's important that we hear this because someone's saying Oh, this, this is, this is it. This is the truth. Well, well, the truth for who? The truth for this, this ranch hand over here or this guy that works on Wall Street. They're two very different truths. So it's important absolutely. that we hear it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we can, and that, that same thing you're talking about right now, when it comes state to state, city to city, area to area, um, I would say once we get into the, the talk of Afghanistan, I'll show you how that matters. And no one's taking that into account. Beautiful. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of fast forward some of the background stuff because we've had such a great conversation, you know, up to this point with the Native American side. Um, 
So you end up, you know, entering, as you said, the army, you find yourself in the special forces. What I like to ask people that have been deployed in, in, to combat is um, we get a very polarized view of war as civilians, you know, on our TV, especially here in the US. Either, uh, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're a bunch of baby killers. And, you know, who we're sending out our young men and women to go fight for our country. Um, so what I like to ask is, you know, is, is, the actual soldier's perspective. So there's two parts to the question. The first part, was there a, you know, a moment when you were first deployed where you saw atrocities? I'm assuming it was probably happening to the people of Afghanistan or Iraq that made you realize, regardless of the politics, that you and, and your brothers in that case were there, you know, to protect those people. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would, I would say multiple times. Um, I've seen that. I saw that even when I was in the regular army and did my first deployment um, to Iraq. You know, um, the basically who we were fighting, the Badr Brigade, and and what we were doing. I mean, you could you could see what they did to civilians. Um, who basically didn't want to follow their rule of law or you know fall under them, provide them money, whether whatever it was. So whether and and to break this down to kind of a civilian's perspective. Um, Everywhere I've gone, you know, it's always corruption and, um, you know, bad guys are doing their thing. But when people say, like, they're doing atrocities, atrocities to civilians, it's also very kind of mafia style. So they have, they have to fund themselves, too. So that could be something as simple as, you know, you're a shopkeeper and you make, um, you know, you, you fix motorcycles and car small engines or whatever. Well, they might tax you, right, for saying, hey, we're going to protect you. Or if you don't do this you know, we're going to kill your son or we're going to rape your wife or whatever it is. But there's a lot of things that happen like that, that a lot of times uh, I would say, you know, Americans don't quite understand. And I would even say so to some point, um, a lot of soldiers don't even see that um, because they may not be kind of inculcated that well into the community and living with the people or getting to really talk about it. So when they, when they hear about it, it's more of like their commanders hear it when they're sitting with the elders or something. Whereas in special forces, the perspective is a lot, um, a lot closer. I would say way more firsthand because you are living with these people. Um, you're fighting with these people. So it's a very different perspective because of how close your relationship is with them. You know, your life truly is depending on them. Um, and you know, they, they, they definitely have performed, um, in that and, you know, save lives, save American lives and, and done great things for Americans. So um, when I look at that, then it's like, yeah, I have seen those things firsthand, you know, I have gone into villages after the Taliban were there or, um, you know, and one of the, one of the nastiest, like just heart wrenching, you know, when I want to say heart wrench, just, I don't know how to feel about it. I just, I'm so angry when I think about it, I just, just see black and just want to kill everybody. But it's like, uh, we do this, we'd call like med caps. We go up and perform um, basically the Delta, there are medics, um, screen everybody for sickness, give them shots, help with, you know, rotten teeth, whatever it is. Uh, and it's also a way that we go in and can get intelligence in villages and whatnot. And uh, there was a, uh, one of my deltas came out of the tent, one of the younger ones, he was throwing up and puking. And uh, I was like, what's going on? He was so pissed off and just kind of went about to rage out. And then I was like, what's, what's going on? You know, so long story short, I go in there where they got this guy and they have this old man and he had this huge, um, like just a hole on the side of his, on, on his, on his ribs, like on, on his rib cage on the side of his body. 
And it was this massive hole that was just gaping wound, but it was just full of pus and just so disgusting and nasty. And what it was, is it was covered in like herpes and uh, every kind of STD you can think of. You had chlamydia and that whole, what was going on was the young, the men, the Taliban men were basically fucking that hole um, in the side of this man's body, this old man. Um, so like, it's, that is like, I would say that's an atrocity, but those are the type of things you see in stories like that are like a dime a dozen in a team room, you know, in special forces or the SEAL team or what have you, the guys that been to places like that. So it's just a little bit more firsthand, in my opinion, when you're working and living with the, with the indigenous people of that country. Yeah, I want to see, and that's what makes, I think, what's happening now so, I think, misunderstood by a lot of people, and especially with you guys. I remember hearing Evan Hafer, I forget it was on Joe Rogan or someone, and he was talking, and I'd asked people on this on this show the same question, you know, if if you were king for a day, how would we have done it differently this last 20 years? And it seems to be, you know, the same answer again, which is spe- you know, specifically Green Berets, because as you said, you're the force multiplier, you're the ones that go in, you know, and, and help that community and, and build an army and get help them fight, you know, for themselves. Um, but, um, through that lens, the, the relationships that must be built, you know, uh, the men, you know, forget about all the other branches and all the other special operations unit, just the Green Berets, just you guys knowing so well the communities that you've left behind now. You know, the communities that now are at the mercy of the Taliban again. I don't think people understand the relationships that you guys built there that you know all these faces now that are so vulnerable and, you know, and many of whom are probably going to be brutalized. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to kind of um, defend the other, the other services, uh, special operations guys, whether that's Marine Raiders or SEALs um, and to include, you know, the, the uh, Anzacs and the Brits, um, everyone, when we first started the war, it definitely was a special forces Green Beret mission, except for um, strategic targets or you know, looking at that kind of direct action missions for the Rangers or Delta Force or, or the SEALs. Um, but because it was going on so long, everybody wanted a piece of the pie. So it's like, okay, you want a piece of the pie, you want to come back in and fight, this is what you have to do. So everyone in special operations in the last, you know, 20 years, and I would say probably not 20, about 15, about 2005 timeframe, um, really took on that force multiplier, um, you know, unconventional warfare style of what, what Green Beret specialized in. Everyone had to do that. Um, as everyone grows, intelligence grows, people start to kind of formulate um, some of the things that ODAs do, adding, you know, an intelligence um, uh, NCO and other things like that. At the same time, it definitely wasn't their specialty. So not knocking those guys, but yes, you're absolutely right. It, it came to a point where we just didn't have enough Green Berets. We needed the help from everyone else, as well as, hey, if you do want to come to war and fight, this is what you're going to have to do. So everyone kind of changed what they did, what their specialty was, especially for um, the SEALs and, uh, and, and the Raiders. When they got stood up, they were kind of formed after ODA. So um, I think they're probably doing their, what their mission set is. I don't know their medal and what their mission set is exactly, but I'm assuming it's very close to, um, to Green Berets. Beautiful. Well, just the other side of the coin before we get to, you know, some, some kind of lateral topics. Um, and the other question I like to ask is amongst all these atrocities, amongst some of these combat zones, people, you know, the, the, the men and women on the ground, 
report over and over again of, you know, elements of kindness, elements of normality, you know, amongst this battle zone or, you know, dad's fixing cars and mom's cooking dinner or vice versa. Um, and, you know, kids kicking around a football. So were there any kind of moments of kindness and compassion that, that, that you remember from your deployments? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, um, I would say, you know, Afghanistan in particular, um, and, and even Iraq. I mean, I was going, you know, to eat dinner with people's families and, and uh, you know, working out with guys. I mean, you, you name it. I mean, it, uh, and then some of the other deployments we were working with commandos where we're basically in charge of like a whole battalion of guys. We would kind of separate and we would, we would basically put two, two Green Berets with each company. And we were advising them and we kind of worked that way. So you get really close with a lot of the, you know, the first sergeants, the commanders, the platoon leaders and platoon sergeants, you get very close with those guys. And then uh, in training, you know, whether you were working out in the morning, doing PT with them or, do, or doing training with them, um, you can just kind of laugh and play with the guys, you know, all the time. And you, you're just learning. We used to play um, uh, every Sunday. We would, we would play football. And on Saturdays we play soccer and we do commandos against green berets and, they would destroy us in soccer. It'd be like 40 to one. And then same thing in football. They, you know, they just run around like yahoos. They don't know how to play football. <laughs> I can attest. Um, but, you know, so there was a lot of camaraderie there. And as far as, um, you know, those acts of kindness, I mean, um, definitely. I mean, I've been in, in the villages, you know, and uh, flowers is kind of a big deal to Afghans. So I've had, you know, uh, men or women. So I've had, you know, uh, kids give me flowers and stuff like that. And, um, vice versa, you know, kind of trade something with them, give them MRE or they're, oh, they'll try to trade something with you like a patch or, um, you know, bring you some food or something. bread. A lot of times bread, that's kind of the common one in Afghanistan. The, we call it the foot breaks. They make it with their feet. Um, it's kind of a non, like a non, but way more delicious in my opinion. Um, yes. I mean, I would say, you know, the, all over the world, regardless of where you are, um, it's one of those things where I, where, yeah, there's bad men and, and really evil people. But on the flip side of that, it's like, you know, kindness and just the human, how humans are in general, everyone is like that. It just, who are they like that too? So, um, yeah, just a very cool, cool, um, culture in Afghanistan. And then the thing about Afghanistan, is like, it's just like in America, you know, like every state or every region is different, different accents, different people, different, different um, kind of cultures of people, you know? Um, and I think that's one of a very important nuance that's very, that's been missing in the media in particular is because they just umbrella, we umbrella Afghanistan or umbrella a country. And we don't really realize how many cultures, you know, subcultures, races, religions, and, and, fa and other factors are at play when you speak about one region or, or a country. Absolutely. Well, you touched on um, funding, you know, the terrorism basically in Iraq. I asked this question early in the podcast, like the first couple of years, and, you know, didn't seem to get any answers. And for some reason, I know there's some sort of paradigm shift where, you know, recently people were, you know, saying, yeah, they were, they were witnessing this. But one of the things that I think when we're looking at the root cause of issues as a firefighter paramedic, I've seen the complete failure of drug prohibition. You know, the, the way that we throw, you know, treat addiction by throwing people in prison, you know, and we, and we empower, 
the gangs, you know, I've, I've pulled the sheets over the 15 year old gangbanger, you know, I've, I've seen the, uh, the opioid overdoses over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and I was very lucky to go to Portugal. My family, some of my family moved there and interviewed the guy who spearheaded decriminalization in that country. Since then, I've interviewed, you know, a bunch of people, especially the SEAL community that are having a lot of success with Ibogaine and, you know, other, um, psychedelics, but they have to go overseas. The men and women that fought for this country have to go to another country to get the treatment for it. But one of the, I think, the big kind of ways to underline the power of, um, the, you know, the, what we've done with prohibition to empower the shitbags of the world is um, the poppy fields in Afghanistan. So what were you seeing as far as drugs being used to fund terrorism in that country? Oh, it's absolutely. I mean, it's it's the biggest, um, you know, area for that. And I mean, I have pictures on Instagram of us just patrolling through poppy fields, you know, pictures of my commandos I, I put up um, just sitting in massive fields of poppy. I, I guess, you know, the soil, whatever it is, but just it just grows up there. Um, there's not a lot of other crops and things they can do. So it, it is a source of revenue regardless, um, whether that's, you know, the farmer who's just trying to feed his family all the way up to, you know, the drug lords selling, selling it into Uzbekistan and, and TJ or, or China or whatever they're doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's huge. And, and I think that's what a lot of people are worried about now is because when I was over there, we used to work a lot with the FBI and the D and the DEA, um, would actually be there and, you know, burning marijuana fields, poppy fields, whatnot. Um, and trying to basically kind of cut the source if you will. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've read, you know, I've seen memes about it already and, and kind of read a couple articles about how um, now the Taliban's in control. They're going to, you know, reestablish that drug, um, pushing drugs again, you know, pushing heroin. Yeah. Well, and the answer to me, and it's, you know, it's simplistic, but I think a lot of true core solutions are simplistic. And one of the, the phrases that I makes me want to punch someone in the face is, is, is when it's dismissed. Oh, it's complicated. No, it's not fucking complicated. The, this prohibition was started in the thirties. And if you look at the root, there's a lot of, you know, roots from racism and job justifications. You know, the alcohol prohibition had obviously shown us that that was a horrible idea, clearly, because we know the names like Al Capone, for example. Um, but you know, supply and demand 101. So, by legalizing around the country addiction, not selling, not smuggling, but by legalizing, you cut the head off the snake because if there's no demand for that stuff, ultimately those farmers hopefully will start growing coffee or, you know, something else that is actually in demand that, that they can make a living without empowering, you know, the underworld. So, you know, what's your view on that? If, if there was no demand from the West or China for those illicit drugs, what would that do to the funding of terrorism in those countries? Oh, it, it would absolutely, it would absolutely, you know, cut a lot of that funding down. Um, I'm sure they've got, you know, you know, access to money or, or other ways that they can uh, or try to pull resources or whatnot. But yeah, I'm the same way. I'm, you know, I'm such an advocate for marijuana. And since my retirement, um, you know, it's been something that's changed my life. I only use CBD and marijuana. And I look at, I look at like that whole, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I could say I'm a libertarian. You know, I don't really consider myself any political anything but you know run with scissors bro I, I don't care what you do as long as it doesn't affect someone else around you and i think that supply and demand thing because it's illegal right now it does affect people so again you look at states that have decriminalized uh, psychedelics or decriminalized you know or made marijuana legal and we don't have problems in colorado like 
you know, what, what people thought they were going to have when it came to the marijuana, um, marijuana market. And that's why I think you see a lot of people, a lot of states actually voting and, and making it, you know, um, medical as well as recreational use. Um, so I think it takes that crime away because if you think about drug dealer stuff, you know, regardless if you're the kid standing on the street corner or you're the boss sitting in a house somewhere or the, you're the, or you're Scarface, like what do you have to protect your money and your drugs? You have guns and then you, you protect it because you think someone else is encroaching on you or going to take it from you. So this is where this violence comes from. And then at the same time, you know, all that snowballs to health effects and whatnot. Um, I'm not as familiar with the Portugal study. I do know they've had some great, uh, um, results from as far as crime crime reduction, um, and I'm not sure if that was just because they cut their arrests down from not arresting you know drug dealers or whatnot. But um, yeah, I don't know if the demand would go away, but I know that it, I think it, I think it would be if it's more open, people use it more responsibly. Um, and obviously, that's kind of a hard sell to say people use alcohol responsibly, but alcohol is a little bit different in my opinion because when you do go back to that. It, and, you know, people can do some research on their own. But if you basically just look at Billie Holiday's life, that's kind of the model for racism, why marijuana was considered, you know, dirty black jazz musicians smoke marijuana, they're lazy, they're this, they're that, they this whole propaganda thing. Because what they really wanted was the elite, elite class knew they were bringing back um, alcohol. So they just didn't want any a competitor. So they could eliminate marijuana as one of their competitors and they could dominate the market with alcohol. So in the 30s, when alcohol came back, that's where the giant push from the 20s and 30s for for the anti-marijuana and they made it really racist. So our country in particular, and I think just the West, you know, the other Western uh, countries, if you will, the EU and and, and whatnot, they kind of use a little bit looser, but a lot of them still have that kind of same American ideology. And I don't know if they adopted it from us or what, but where all drugs are bad, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. And and uh, there's been some studies, you know, where people have done, uh, professors have done heroin and whatnot, and, and they're fine. And it's, you know, and so I don't know. I'm just one of those guys who's like, look, it's a deeper root. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a drug advocate. I'm a plant medicine advocate. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, go do cocaine because you think it's cool. I don't know what that does to you. I don't do cocaine. Um, but I think if they eliminated that, uh, it would just be out more out in the open. People use it more responsibly. Because let's be honest, like especially when you look at a drug like cocaine, I mean, they call it the rich white man's drug for a reason. Um, you, you know, it, and, and until I've really um, been around people, even when I was in the Army and, or got out of the Army, I didn't really realize how popular that drug was with upper middle class or successful people in general, you know. Yeah, well, it's it's so fascinating. There's a book um, called Chasing the Scream written by Johan Hari, and he was behind that um, film they made of Billy Holiday recently. I don't know if you saw that. But yeah, Harry Anslinger, it started in the UK, and they basically politically started forcing that agenda on the UK, on Australia. So, you know, they're they're behind the, the kind of eight ball a little bit because they're still stuck in that trench as well. But I mean, seeing seeing Portugal, like I said, my family live there. They they report to me, you know, what what's going on. And you imagine all the resources, that, you know, whether it's the prisons, the actual law enforcement, the, the court system, completely cleaned out from all the, the addicts you know, what you're left with. And they take those addicts and they, they give them the mental health counseling that they need. They do job creation. They do all these things because addicts are just people that are hurting, you know. And as you said, as a thing he talks about, um, I think it's Rat, Rat Park. And they basically did a study to, and you know, on these rats and shooting. And one, I think as 
water and one was cocaine water. I forget how they did it. But anyway, there, there was no, there was no hook. So even that, that hook that we believe in actually, you know, is more of a, of a mental health element, you know, the void that we're trying to fill. So it is, it's just fascinating to me because as you said, you know, whatever it is now, 80 years ago, there was no prohibition of drugs and a lot of the drugs were used very successfully to treat things. And I think we're finally starting to unravel it and get back to that point as well because Ibogaine's having amazing results. I use CBD. I had some before this, this interview because uh, it's been a busy week and I, I, you know, it's so, so good. It's worked so well for my son's you know, wheezing, for my wife's anxiety. Um, and people are terrified of it. Firefighters, it's got zero THC and they will not take it, but they'll take their opiates and their depression meds and all that stuff. You put chemicals in your body, but you won't put something that's all natural into your body, which is definitely kind of mind blowing to me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we want to get to the, the, um, withdrawal in a second, but before we do in the video, you, you know, you talked about the industrial military complex. And I think that's a, an important thing as well. Cause I've noticed, you know, I mean, I think anyone that turns off the TV and just thinks about it for a second, there are companies that get incredibly rich during wars. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's basic economics. So, you know, there, there's, there's the lean way of doing it, obviously. And, you know, as we mentioned, the special operations community seems to think that that would have been a good way of addressing some of these recent conflicts. But we've lost so many men and women to IEDs. So many come back, you know, physically and mentally broken. So talk to me about that element. And obviously this is through your eyes, your opinion, but I mean, it's something that, you know, I think is, is such a dichotomy. Yes, we're trying to do good in the world, but there are a lot of people that have a vested interest in keeping wars going as well. Yeah, I look at it like um, the reason like in, in my video, I try to explain a little bit about how they all tie into each other. And when you look at who really, where is all the money, where's all the wealth at in our, in our country, we look at the industries. And those industries are in big tech, big pharma, big energy, because the reason why I say energy and not like oil is because, you know, the, the solar power and windmill stuff is starting to, um, it ain't worth a shit, but it's just ripping people off and, and it's part of it now. It's part of the whole big energy thing. And then the industrial military complex. So those four are really the industries that run our country. And when you look at um, the industrial military complex, they all, they feed off of the other three. So even though big tech will censor guns and censor all this other stuff, right? When you look at who they have contracts with and what they invest their money in. So why is CBD shadow banned on, on, on Facebook and Instagram? Well, because if you look at all of Google and you look at most of Silicon Valley's investments, it's all in big pharma. So Big Pharma has a, another agenda. They don't want you to use something that they don't make to fix yourself, right? And then how do, where does big tech tiny industrial military complex? Like, for instance, Cisco. Cisco has a contract with, you know, special operations where we're, they use our, like, servers or whatever. So that's just our green side, you know, stuff I can talk about. And it's like, well, how do you think – Everyone has these giant contracts. I mean, Americans, we always miss this. We always are like, wait, wait, Google has what? Or Apple sold the government this? Or, you know, whether that's, even if it's just the phone itself, you know, big tech is tied into that. Big energy, and the reason why, um, if you haven't been to a small base or a FOB in Afghanistan or Iraq, a lot of people don't understand, you know, we have these giant generators that are the size of, of you know, like, uh, tractor trailers, like the trailer that a tractor trailer pulls. 
Well, those things run 24 seven. So think about just running one generator and like a small camp that like 50 dudes live on. There's probably two or three of those generators running 24 seven, 365 for how many years. But if you just do the math on that, who's providing that oil, who's providing that. And then um, I'll dive a little bit farther when it comes to the companies that get rich because they tie in maintenance contracts and this, this, all these generators come with X amount of mechanics under contract by KBR. These are our generators. This is our fuel. So this is where you see all these companies within the military industrial complex spiking and making so much money. Um, and then big pharma ties in because, you know, 1% of the population is veterans. So they get, they have a guaranteed, 1% of the population that goes to the VA and gets prescribed, prescribed medications. Um, so big pharma, they love it. You know, they, the more people that are on drugs, the more big pharma makes money. And they like, we're the only, I think we're the only um, country in the world that allows uh, pharmaceuticals to be advertised on TV. I think so. And that's absurd. It's like, why should I go to my doctor and say, Hey, I saw this awesome drug Humira that could treat shingles. And the doctor's like, oh, yeah, because he's under contract. And like, yeah, I get a certain percentage for everything I prescribe to you that's under Humira. So, yep, you could have that. Versus and not looking at the side effects. Because Americans, we want that, like, we want to take a pill. We want, and we want it to fix us. You know, we, we don't want to do the long game. We don't want to, we don't want six-pack abs. We don't want to eat right and work out for three months to get a six-pack. We want to take fat burners and other things. So I get my six pack by the end of the week. So that's just how we are as Americans. So that, so big pharma is really tied into that and, and really kind of put their thumb on Americans on just American culture. I think when it comes to how we think and, and the type of things we want, we also just kind of blindly trust doctors. Well, a lot of people don't understand that do a lot of medicine um, doctors have a specialty. So I'm not talking about your trauma surgeon or your trauma level uh, care. A lot of those guys are trained in trauma, right? But as soon as you leave that facility or that immediate care with trauma, then you go into some kind of specialized thing. Well, everyone thinks that all these doc like, you know, doctors have a specialty. It doesn't mean they know everything. But at the same time, if you're going to see your doctor and your back hurts, they're not going to say, hey, Jeremiah, you need to lose 30 pounds. And then here's some things we could do to maybe your back doesn't hurt. Instead, they're just here's some opioids for your back. We'll see what it is. We'll give you MRI. Oh, maybe you need this surgery. Maybe you don't, whatever. So the reason why I'm kind of like long balling all of this and tying it into where the industrial military complex fits in is that everyone has an agenda from these three major um, entities of our country that make up almost all the money. So they all have an agenda that feeds in the military industrial complex. And then you can't tell me that politicians don't get rich off of it when if you're, if you're a politician – um, let's take like everyone loves Dan Crenshaw, right? So let's take Grant, Dan Crenshaw for, for, for an example. He's an officer as a Navy SEAL. I don't know what his net worth was before he was a politician, but it couldn't have been that much. If we're just, unless his family has money or he's coming from money, we're just taking his job and what he does. I mean, he made over a hundred thousand. I made about $110,000 a year as an officer, as a Navy SEAL, probably. That's what I'm guessing. Then he gets out and that money goes where? Nothing. So he has some disability. Let's say he's 100% disabled. So he has, you know, $3,000 a month. Okay, that's, that's what he's making a month. What is Dan Crenshaw's net worth right now? I have no idea. So, exactly. I guarantee you it's, there's a bunch of zeros behind it. So 
the thing is, is like, look at all politicians. They've been, like, how, how is Nancy Pelosi worth $450 million? And everyone can say, oh, she came from money. She didn't come from that much money. So when you talk about insider trading and what their husbands or their wives are allowed to bid on and trade on and everything else. So politicians, in my opinion, are crooked. And I think that Congress and the Senate need term limits. You can't be a politician for 50 years and tell me that you understand your constituents and you're doing what's best for your, the people around you. You're not. You're doing what's best to pad your pockets and to keep you in the job you're in. So this is where the industrial military complex has all these initiatives where they're trying to push and lobby to all these politicians so they can can stay at war. Uh, And this basically comes and everyone's favorite thing is to say, oh, well, General so-and-so or General so-and-so. Okay, well, here's the deal, man. Most officers in the military are pieces of shit. No one likes officers for a reason because they start at some point their career takes precedence over taking care of the boys and to get promoted it's so competitive in their job field in their ranks to be battalion commander to be you know the next level to continuously be at the next level they have to compete with every other officer in their branch in their rank so it's very competitive so they so they tend to the guys that tend to take care of the boys and make waves tend to be the guy that doesn't get the top lock and doesn't get stood. So the guy who pleases the boss and does whatever he can to make himself look good tends to be the guy who gets promoted. So if you fast forward, and I'm not saying this is all officers, so whoever's an officer out there, like whatever, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it gets to a point where you have these general officers. They basically are politicians in uniform. They've been a politician to get to that rank. um, And that's a very high percentage of them. I have worked with some stellar officers, some stellar generals and admirals. Don't get me wrong. Um, So what happens is you have these guys who retire out of the Army as a general, and they work in the Pentagon, so they get all go up to D.C. their last year in the Army so they can hobnob and meet everybody and tell them how, hey, when I get out of the Army, I'm going to go straight to Raytheon. So now if you look at what they do, it's like General Austin. I mean, we made him the Secretary of Defense. When you can look at his career, you can look at how he's tied to the military industrial complex. Um, And that just goes around for everyone. So they basically, they work in the Pentagon or something for the last year. On Friday, they retire. And on Monday, they put on a suit and they walk right back into the same job in the Pentagon, or they walk into an industrial military complex. They work for a major company, a major corporation in the industrial military complex. The same thing with all the news pundits. The news likes to bring on, you know, general so-and-so and get general so-and-so's point of view. You can look it up. You Google him. Like I tell people to look at Jack Keane. Look at how he's tied to the industrial military complex. Look what he owns. Look where he's investing. Look what board he sits on. But yeah, he's, now he's a Fox News pundit, and he's always talking about war and what we should be doing and should be doing. So that also ties into the media, where now we have this propaganda machine that pumps and feeds that because everything's based off clickbait. Everything's based off of money. And the industrial military complex is what helps pump money into this. Politicians help pump money into this because it's, it's this ongoing thing. So a lot of uh, if people have already heard a lot of special operations guys speak. They've, I've heard it, you know, all week, you know, since it kind of started. Everyone knows we should have left in 2002. That was the right answer. We hit diminishing returns in 2002. We killed the bad guys. We did what we we're supposed to do. And we left. Now, I've also heard some good opinions because we didn't leave, right? So, yes, we do have a footprint in Korea and Japan and all these other places. There was a way to um, do it correctly. However, all the generals failed us. There was never a plan. Like, there really wasn't a um, 
So in, in the military, you have your tactical level, and that's like boots on ground, guys really doing the fighting, your operational level, which is kind of advising and, and I would say commanding that level. And then you have your uh, strategic level. At the strategic level, that's where all the you know big brain on Brad, all the generals sit. They didn't have a plan for finishing, and they clearly didn't have a plan for exiting, as we can see now. So I just look at that, and I, and I, I wanted to share so much of the industrial military complex when I made that video because I already heard, you know, people were messaging me, texting me, DMing me, whatever, and were like, well, how do you feel? What do you think? And had all these different opinions. And then I already kind of to see the articles being written, the news talking, uh, veteran organizations, veteran companies talking about how it was all for nothing and, and all this other shit. And the reality of it is, is you can only affect what you can touch, right? So if you're a soldier, especially if you're a, a conventional soldier, um, they are top-down driven organizations in the military, whereas most special operations is bottom-up intelligence, bottom-up driven. So we get a different perspective. Uh, we often understand what the strategic level is trying to do. We often go on missions that affect from the tactical level all the way up to the strategic level, whereas conventional forces don't really ever get that. Maybe their commander um, understands a little bit of that, but if that filters down to the average guy, it doesn't. So even on, even so, all that being said, even if you're a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret or you're an infantry kid in the 82nd, you can only affect what you can touch. So what you touched when you were there, you, for people to say that it, we didn't do anything or it was all for nothing is fucking bullshit. They don't know what they're talking about. So the things that we did for the population of that country, um, all, yeah, all the, all the things right now that everyone's dwelling on. Yeah, their women can't, you know, they're not going to be able to go to school and all these things. We, we did a lot of good in that country. The other thing is with veterans is, yeah, a lot of guys sacrificed and, and, and guys died. Um, I think the veteran perspective of the world, of what's going on in our country, of First Amendment, of Second Amendment, regardless if they lean left or right, is a lot deeper and a lot more meaningful than most Americans because we've seen the worst in humanity. We've also been on the cusp of life and death. We've seen death. We've seen death firsthand. We've had. We've seen life being taken from people. We understand the importance and how precious life is. We understand the importance of our freedoms. We understand why all over the world people wave the American flag as a beacon of hope. We understand that and we get that more than any other people in our country. So I think that that was what I was trying to just kind of like reiterate and just, I was just angry. I, do, I still don't know how to feel about it all, you know, because I can remove myself and, and look at the big picture of things. And I think leaving is the correct answer. You know, I'm tired of, um, you know, nation building. It's not what we do. We're an army. We're, we're a fighting force. We fucking kill bad dudes. We don't build shit. It's not what we do. Um, so I, I'm still a little conflicted or, or still a little lost in how exactly how I feel about it because my heart goes out to the Afghan people. Um, you know, I blood, sweat and tears with those guys, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's very emotional when you see, when you see what's going on. Um, and the other side of it is like, we need to be gone. Like it's the reality. We can't fix everything. We, it's not what we do. Um, so I was just torn and I just wanted to let, reiterate that I didn't hear anyone talking about in the media, social media, nothing was this is the industrial military complex. This is 
old white men sending young men to war. That's what that is. And, you know, and that's why at the end of that, you know, I read some tweets from Mitt Romney and other people like, oh, we need to go back. And like, you're talking to the wrong set of dudes, especially when you talk about, you know, your infantrymen, your infantry guy who's spent 20 years in the military, who's been there from since he was a private to, you know, special operations guys who have so much instilled, not just from the friends they lost, but the friends they met, the friends that they stay in contact with through email and through, through, you know, messaging apps and whatnot. I mean, these people have a huge tie to Afghanistan. So when you say go back, like you have a plenty of people are willing to go back right now. The thing is, is like, we want to go back, come with me. You come with me though. And we need to know what right is, what the end state is. What is the victory? What is the Taliban? And going down what is the Taliban and what is Afghanistan, it's another piece that's missing is there's so many provinces and so many tribes and so many things going on in Afghanistan that most American soldiers only spent time in one location or one region. Um, even in special operations that, that often happen. Uh, I was very fortunate to work in a unit where I worked all over. I've been to every single place in Afghanistan where we had Americans based at. Um, I did PSD for uh, General Thomas for a while and other generals. And um, in, so basically, who's in charge of all special operations in Afghanistan? I fly around with them and protect them. But I got to sit in every single briefing, uh, whether that was, you know, uh, locals, you know, the, the Afghan people mixed with the Green Berets or SEALs to include the American side, the Australian side, just everything you could think of. So what a lot of people don't understand is like the way you fight or the, the problems that are going on in Nangahar are not the same problems and the same type of people that are in Paktika or what's going on in Helmand is not what's going on in Panjway. Like it's just completely different. They could even border each other. The next valley doesn't care about the next valley. So when we look at commandos or we look at the army and, and Joe Biden said we have a fighting force of 300,000 that can defend themselves and this and that. Well, even the fighting force is that way. It's so corrupt that you have guys out there with no ammo. They have no air support. They have no logistics. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Even the commandos, these badass dudes we trained and, and fought with for years, you know, they're, they're burned out. I, I think they were still up in 2007. They're there at 365, you know, they, all the time. They've been at war, you know, so we leave and come back and we come back and we want to go after it and go get it because we're only there for six months. And those commandos, they're there the whole time. So what's happened to them? They're battle fatigued. Um, they're under they logistically, they, they don't have it logistically. So they're out in the middle of the mountains fighting, getting a gunfight with the Taliban. At some point it's just like, Hey, you know, in good faith, we're going to surrender because we can't, we're going to die. We can't keep fighting. We have no, no, we don't have anything to fight with. So whether they were murdered or not, or whatever happened to them, a lot of people are knocking the Afghan army, but they're, they don't understand that part of it. You know, we remove us, we remove all the logistics, all the air support. Uh, and they've also, they're just battle fatigue, man. You know, the Taliban are fine waiting us out. They go over the mountains in the winter before winter hits and they live a love lavish life in Pakistan where no one messes with them. They can train, do whatever they want. So again, that was my other point in that video was yes, technically we gave them all the tools, but we also, didn't our hands were tied and every single I, I i would you know especially in special operations community i can guarantee you guys can give you firsthand accounts on how their hands were tied when their hands were tied the things that we were allowed to not do or, or, or what have you 
Um, so that was just something that was like very, that I wanted to let other veterans know that may not have that perspective. You know, if you're a Marine and you've been to Helmand province, you know, spent two years there, you're not necessarily seeing the rest of the country and how it works. And then you're also, um, you know, again, you can only affect what you can touch. You only remember, you only, you only see that one level uh, that boots on ground, your squad, your platoon, whatever, what have you, that's what you saw. And that's what you're a part of. So everyone's experience is going to be a little bit different with that. Yeah. Well, firstly, thank you. I mean, you know, the, what's beautiful about these conversations is I shut the hell up and let you talk and don't interrupt you or go to a Coca-Cola commercial break or whatever. But, you know, that you've hit on a few important things and I've been so fortunate. I'm a, I'm a firefighter and it's funny because some of the things that you talk about are paralleled in our professions too. We get to see death and destruction, the violence and the impact of the drugs and all that stuff. But, um, you know, what concerns me now is our veterans, you know, and I've spoken to people from, you know, Australia and, and the UK and, and all over the place. And all those, you know, men and women were fighting side by side, as you said. But the, the relationships that you guys built, I had a uh, Johnny Walker on, codename Johnny Walker, um, an Iraqi interpreter that ended up becoming like the trusted, the, the member of their team. And they were able to actually get him out. It took three and a half years to get just one man and his family safely out. So between him and Jason Tushin, who was the SEAL that came on with him, you know, we got a little insight into just one relationship in this, in this case in, in Iraq. Um, then you add, as you said, the, the industrial military complex. And, you know, I talk about this from the health, you know, this last year and a half, we've been talking about COVID, no mention of changing the way we farm, changing the way that we, you know, the, the food we put in schools, we are um, bolstering exercise, encouraging outdoorsmanship. I mean, all these things that would truly, truly make a difference. So we have a healthcare system that basically profits off sick people. We don't want you to die and we don't want you to be healthy, just somewhere in the middle. You know, so how is that going to drive health? Well, that experiment, you know, the results are right here. 70% obese or overweight. Well, it's the same thing with, with, with the war. If we have a profit-based war system too, then people aren't going to want, those people aren't going to want peace. So, you know, you've got these men and women that have come home now, whether they're completely intact, but they just got the trauma you know, within their mind, whether they're missing limbs, they've, they've lost friends of so many people on here have had, you know, amputees and, you know, every single guest in the military at some point is, you know, is kind of going through their broken hearted story of, of the men and women that they lost. So now they're back in the US, you know, and, and whether they're in the military or they transitioned out, they're having to process that. So all these polarizing fucking political conversations are going on these bullshit stations we call news over here are missing the entire fact that the men and women that we sent over are now having to process, was it worth it? Of course it's worth it. And that's why I asked you that two-part question. Every single veteran talks about the people they helped in those towns, the relationships they built, you know, the, the, the kindness and compassion they saw. That's where the difference was made, regardless of the overall mission. But what worries me is we have a population that's already struggling mentally and now we're compounding that with this latest, um, you know, it, it's great that we pulled out, but there is a fucking cost to that. Yeah, absolutely. And th yeah, that's, that was one of my biggest worries of why, um, you know, I just thought there was things missing that I saw with a lot of the pundits and, and news outlets and even articles written by veterans and, and veteran uh, companies. Um, you know, I, I just, 
I think uh, the Coffee or Die Mag, the Black Rifle Coffee Dies guys have done a great job. I think there's a couple other pages I follow that have done a great job of really addressing some things and nuances. And um, there's obviously a lot of special operations guys in that company. So kind of giving that perspective and breaking some things down, um, they've done a good job on that. And, and uh, but that was just, I was just worried about that too. You know, like um, I think, you know, survivor's guilt and, and when you when just all the issues guys deal with uh, and big pharma definitely ties into that. When you look at suicide rate and everything, it's like, we're already in alcohol society. It's easy to drink. You start taking pills that chemically change the makeup of your brain and everything else. And then we wonder why people are, are committing suicide. Um, and I would be, you know, I don't know the stats on it, but I would bet they're very, very high. If not close to a hundred percent of suicides or, you know, they're, they're on some kind of pharmaceuticals uh, and probably a lot of them, probably something that changes, you know, your, the way your brain uh, physically functions. Um, so, you know, I don't, I'm still kind of lost with it because I think it can be easy for guys to feel depressed and, and soldiers and Marines, whatever, you know, to be, to feel that way uh, that it didn't mean anything. And I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of, cause I don't feel that way. Um, however, I have, I don't know, the special operations community is so different. You know, a lot of the guys I talk to, they're all special operations. I've had read some DMS and have some conversation with guys, a regular army, you know, and, uh, regular Marine Corps. Um, but for me, I don't have that, but I could see that perspective coming and I can all, I saw memes about it. I saw, you know, things that, and it's funny how even the military Marine meme culture has really shaped a lot of opinions with guys and, and directions people can go in. So I think it's, I think it's a good thing and a bad thing. And I just saw some that to me, I was like, Whoa, 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 this is, this is not, you know, in my opinion, what veterans need to hear. And it's also, you don't need to start that. Oh, it was all for nothing bullshit. Um, because I think each individual, if they really think about it, instead of looking at this overarching whole of Afghanistan or whole of the war and saying, you know, I lost X amount of buddies. Um, and, and, you know, and I feel bad because I guess it's easy for me to say, right? Like I just got TBIs. I had, and, you know, some other nerve damage shit. I'm not, I'm, I'm not physically fucked up. Like, there's some dude right now who's, you know, missing two legs and his dick and he's sitting here and, and he's like, what for nothing? Like, you know, so that's just how I feel. Like the thing that most Americans don't understand how physically fucked up a lot of these guys are maimed and mangled and, and the, the ongoing struggle they deal with every day, just trying to be a member of society, you know, um, so that was just something I was very worried about. I'm still kind of lost on it. I don't really know where to go or even what I'm trying to say now because um, I know in my heart and I've done things and that I know we did good. I know it wasn't for nothing. But I can't speak for, like I said, the guy in a wheelchair who doesn't even have testicles to about how he feels. So I'm lost on it. Uh, I think someone way smarter than me, you know, can probably break some of that down uh, and, and, and figure out what, what those guys can pull from to draw from the good times or the memories or whatever else. But that's just all I try to explain to people. In my social media pages that way, I just want to be positive. I just want people to have fun and not always think about the dark, gloomy shit and be able to draw from the really cool things about their friends or those fun times, all those laughs, all the shit that you guys did and the grab ass and then the fun shit that happened before one of your best mates got killed. So 
that and the same thing with the people of the country you were there for and what you did. And you can look at um, the advancements you made, whether that was gaining ground or whether that was just building a school or guarding a school or, or even something as simple as the election. You know, like people want to take all these, all we, we're not looking at it as, yeah, it's 20 years, but in that 20 years, look how much everything grew. Look at the, the massive changes that happened and developed in that country over 20 years. And the Taliban, I'm, they're bad people. You know, I'm not sticking up for the Taliban, but at the same time, I've been to villages and places where the Taliban is a form of government. I've had tea with the elders and they respect us and they're glad we're there. But at the end of the day, they're like, look, when you guys leave, you're, you're here for how many days and you leave or the next team comes in and they think something else is strategic or their command tells them to move. You guys leave and the Taliban's still here. So I have to do what's best for me and my family. And the Taliban's a form of government. I'm a Muslim. You know, like funny thing is all these Americans, we want to have our ideology on the world. And at all the time I spent in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Iraq a couple of times differently, I did have some female nurses and some other things, but I've never sat with generals, elders, anyone and had chai with a woman. There wasn't women soldiers. There, like, so it's kind of a funny thing for Americans to be like, oh my God, we need more women to be involved in Afghanistan. But it's like, that's not them. That's not who they are. Even, you know, like this, this is not their culture. So when you're talking to some elders in the mountains of Afghanistan, they're good with the Taliban coming in and, and they're not that bad. They're like, yeah, they're going to protect me. No one's going to mess with me. I got to grow some opium. I get to make some money. Um, you know, or maybe they can deal with, you know, giving a daughter away, um, you know, for some protection or whatever. And that's one of those things where Americans, we don't understand that. We're like, oh, my God, how could they do that? Or, what, you know, what is the thing? But it's like, no, grooming little boys and pedophilia and all that. That's There's normalcies that happen in places that we just don't understand. I'm not saying it's right, because I think that is fucking disgusting. But that's a norm that happens. We talk about women or the way they're treated. So again, the Taliban is a form of government. There's a lot of places in Iraq or excuse me, in Afghanistan that had that perspective of like, when you guys leave, the Taliban are still going to be here. And, you know, that's kind of the fact of it. Um, so I, I, again, I'm still lost. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, again, going back to the commandos and the, and the, the uh, Afghan special forces, I mean, they're battle fatigue, you know, they're the, really the only ones fighting all the time. And, there's so much corruption in that country. I um, mean, just look at the president. He flew away in a helicopter with millions of dollars in cash. Um, I've been in warehouses full of ammo or full of weapons, just warehouses. And I'm like, what is, why, why is all this shit in here? And the, and the guy's like, oh, it's mine. Some, you know, officer uh, in the commando battalion. And it, he's like, oh, it's mine. No, it's not yours. It's for the, the you know, someone's like, hey, we don't have any uniforms that are ALP don't have any uniforms. You go in this warehouse and there's warehouses full of uniforms. Okay. Well, well, and that's, it's just corruption on corruption on corruption. So it happens in our country at the very top levels. And then it also happens in all those countries. So when you add that corruption there and the way I can explain to some veterans on that too, is like your hands were tied because not only on the American side, but on the Afghan side. And I'll explain that in like, when you think about fraud, waste, and abuse in the government, and most, most civilians, I don't think, understand this, um, and I'm sure it applies to construction contracts or anything the government does, but you, know, you can go out and buy a Glock 
like a Glock 19 for, I don't know, under $400 at any state in the United States. I don't know now because of the price or whatever, but I'm just spitballing here a couple years ago, right? How much do you think the army pays for a Glock 19? They probably pay three times that for a Glock 19 because we add contracts to it. We have maintenance contracts. We have a third party vendor. We don't just go straight to Glock and buy something. It has to go through you know, ADS or this other third party person that gets their cut and then they get their cut, they get their cut. And then by the way, it has to be bought through FN Herstal because we can have a contract because we're feeding the military industrial complex. Fraud, waste and abuse. If the government was a business, we'd be bankrupt and we are bankrupt and people don't see that and we blindly follow the government. And this is why I go back to my roots, my ancestors of look what happened to the natives. Why are we blindly following the government at anything? They're violating treaties right now in Minnesota and South Dakota, and no one talks about it. No one talks about water with the Native Americans in Minnesota and, and South Dakota. Let's we talk gave, about it now. Tell me, educate us. So basically, uh, um, an oil company out of Canada got a contract, and they're bringing a pipeline down to us. So basically, you have a foreign, foreign company um, being able to run a pipeline through um, the Indian reservations. Well, it's already like, look, man, we already took the land from these people. Why don't you go around or invest something that can give them a jobs, give them jobs, give them job security, but they're worried about the water. So when people say, Oh, water's not a big deal. The Flint, Michigan crisis was downplayed so much. And a lot of people don't know how crazy that is in Flint, Michigan, but that happened on Indian reservations and other places. So they contaminated the water. So now you have natives worried about the water and they they actually call themselves water protectors because they want to put these pipelines under the rivers or through the rivers or whatever. And they're worried about their water system being, um, you know, poisoned again, basically. So now you have the federal government, it's basically federal government versus natives. And so basically they're still violating a treaty that they agreed to saying, hey, this is your land. We're not going to mess with you on this land now because we call it the reservation and it's yours. But then all of a sudden we have a way to monetize something. So we take it back. And that happened, you know, in the 18, in the you know 1870s. Why do you think Custer was in the Black Hills? Because they found gold. So they wanted to take it back from the Indians because they found gold and they had resources they could monetize there. And that continues to happen as cattle, as whatever becomes a resource they want to monetize. They continuously take land away. So... That's just something that like that I that I would like for people to understand and even go down the rabbit hole of, of investigating because when you look at all the arguments for COVID or the Second Amendment, um, all the things that's going on, that same argument applies to that. And that's where I look at where it could go on a larger scale. So I'm not saying there might not be Indian reservations, but look at the things the government did to one subset of people. That subset of people could be a religion. It could be a uh, political point of view. It could be anti, it could be the unvaccinated. It could be whatever it is. And sometimes we do see glimpses into that tunnel going in that direction in, uh, in, you know, just in general, in the government, in the media, you know, society in general. Big, 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 I think big tech is, is definitely to blame a lot for that one. See, it's interesting. Today, I finished off my interview with uh, Dr. Edith Eager, who was an Auschwitz survivor. I mean, that's 
that's a horrible label for her. She's an incredible woman. She's a ballerina. She became a psychologist. She survived Auschwitz. That's not who she is. That's what happened to her. But, you know, her view of coming out of that and then coming to the South and seeing segregation and, you know, all that stuff happening again. And then even recently, you know, anti-Semitism, you know, in some of the extreme rights rearing its head again. So, you know, the most nauseating thing is when we allow history to repeat ourselves or repeat itself, excuse me. But going back to what the, you know, processing, you know, the, 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 the facade of futility of what the veterans did. I think the first responder community has, you know, a perspective that might help. For example, we have a complete obesity epidemic in this country and myself and my peers run on cardiac arrest after cardiac arrest after cardiac arrest. We have a, you know, prohibition, you know, a, a, an addiction epidemic you know, and the crime associated with it. And we run on gang-related murder, gang-related murder, overdose, overdose. So there's futility built in what we do. And we, you know, we need to reverse engineer the roots of these problems because they're still fucking happening. The driving test in Florida is fucking pathetic. You know, a three-year-old could pass our test. And so we run on, you know, car crash after car crash. We see children bleed to death over and over and over again. But it doesn't take away from the lives that we save. It doesn't take away from those rescue attempts. But there's an element of futility in what we do because it keeps fucking happening and no one is adjusting, addressing the root causes of these either. So as a first responder reaching back out to the, the veterans, as you said, what you can touch, the saves that we made, even holding someone's hand while they died and being there for them, that made a difference to that person, even though this fucking machine keeps spitting out you know, so much disease and, and, you know, death in our profession as well. Absolutely. I think it's a great analogy. And, and the one thing, you know, the other perspective I like to, to say is that, you know, the men and women didn't fail. Our leadership failed us. Um, you know, so, and that's a very upper echelon of leadership. They failed us for 20 years. And that was something that really bothered me was people were trying to turn this into right versus left. Instead of looking at it like, you know, it's been multiple administrations, it's been multiple, multiple people. Um, so it's just like, no, is our leadership failed us. And the same thing with you guys. It's like, yeah, clearly leadership is failing us. The system is failing. Um, and I think every answer to that is um, what I think the, you know, again, going back to Afghanistan, everyone likes to tie this in this very big picture, broad brush of just Afghanistan. And you can't solve anything. That's like saying opioid crisis in America. Okay. Well, each region, each state, each city is going to be different on how we need to handle that and what we need to do for the opioid crisis. Right. Um, but I can see where the wheels just keep spinning and spinning and spinning and basically just boils down to me where, like you said, I can touch it. You did save lives. People did great shit. People were fucking badass, heroic. Um, you know, it wasn't for nothing. And we are warriors at the end of the day. Like we're the last warrior culture right now. It's the best time to be alive, to be an American right now. It's so easy. I mean, it's holy fuck. It's easy to be an American and people complain about it. And we don't really realize that. And I think it's going to, you know, unfortunately, I think some bad things are going to happen before we have another hard, um, you know, set of war fighters and, and warriors amongst us. Absolutely. Well, I want to touch on the mental health thing and then, and then we'll kind of, you know, conclude the, the conversation. But 
from the mental health perspective from from this project whether it's you know responders and military and all these people have told their incredibly courageous story and being transparent and put their story out to help other people whether it's the the professionals in those spaces um you know there were some some areas that are very you know important i think for people to hear i think one is that you know childhood trauma is a huge element that's why some people deal with it well some people don't um you know obviously there's what we see there's um they have sleep deprivation tbi i mean those are huge as well you have the organizational stress, which I think is the the elephant in the room that you could be a great responder and just under some really shitty leadership and it you know that can drive you crazy. But the message that I want to put out um because I've had people that have literally been about to take their own life I've had people that attempted it, jumped off a bridge, shot themselves and and thank goodness survived you know with some injuries um but it's the same thing over and over again. Of course, there's an element where they want the pain to end, you know, the mental. But the other thing is, you know, we always tell people, oh, you know, think of your family, you know, don't be selfish, um, you know, all this kind of stuff. What I've realized is when people get to this level of crisis, they, they are at a point, and the only way the analogy I use, if you and I went up on, you know, skyscraper right now and stood on the end with a healthy mind there'd be that invisible hand pushing you back like, whoa, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> get back, it's, it's really high up here. The, the miswiring from all those cumulative things, that hand goes to the, to your back. And the, the way I see it is suicide at that point becomes selfless because there's this absolute belief that the responder, the soldier, whoever it is, is a burden to their family. Everyone of clear mind around knows that that's the opposite, that you leave trauma, you amplify that with your family, you hurt them more than ever. But telling them, oh, think of your family, they're like, I am fucking thinking of my family. The world will be better off without me. They can have my life insurance policy or whatever it is. So I just wanted to put, it wasn't even a question, but that's a really unique perspective and you don't really hear that very much. If you start hearing in your mind that you're a burden, that's a fucking giant red flag to pick up a phone and talk to someone. Because that is when your brain now, the entire world is in a, in a separate dimension that's not going to make any fucking sense. But to you, you're going to believe when your mind says, I'm a burden, I, you know, everyone would be better off without me, which, you know, know that that's absolute bullshit. Everyone here, unless you're a genocidal maniac, is loved by someone. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it boils down. I, I was just say they have a broken brain, you know. Um, there's a really... <clears throat> badass dude that a lot of guys know um killed himself not too long ago and you know everyone's like wow you know wife and kids and he's just badass war hero you know ranger battalion and, and, and special forces and just this awesome stellar dude and he killed himself and it's like yeah he has a broken brain like people you can't rationalize oh your family or why would you kill himself i can't believe he did that he has wife and kids and all this other stuff people try to rationally because we think rationally our brain's not broken if your brain's broken like you said that hand goes to your back and you're just like yeah i'm yeah i'm better off they're better off without me you know you're 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 rationalizing and the way you process it is in a totally different direction than way someone who doesn't have a broken brain processes it and rationalizes it so i think that with the veteran community, um, that is why it is really high, um, you know, and, and oftentimes I think we look at the other thing is 
you know, if your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 26 years old, then that means that, you know, overwhelming amount of these veterans receive this trauma and process all of this at a very young age. So it's, so it's, so the difference between being 21 and being and you know, and, and so let's say, take like a sexual assault victim, for instance, if you're sexually assaulted when you're 14, I mean, it, it's probably just as, you know, as traumatic and that experience, but if that brain's not developed, what's the difference between being 18? Like people may think that that one's an adult and one isn't. Yes, true. You know, you're a little more mature, but at the same time, I mean, you're, you're still talking about a developing brain there. So we take that same trauma and we, and we think about it, like all these, all these soldiers um, receive this trauma at a very young age. It's very hard to process. And then you fast forward that to, you know, they passed up a lot of their life that other people um, didn't, you know, in a, in a very weird way. Yeah. Barrick's life or partying with their friends and they, they might have a great time, you know, like comparable to college, but at the same time, there's a lot to deal with there and a lot to unpack. I think when you're, when you do those things that young, and I think a lot of Americans kind of forget that we think of veterans and we think of an older guy, you know, somebody like me who's retired when we think of veteran or, or, you know, an, uh, an older, you know, 50, 60 year old, uh, man, you know, walking around with this cool um, Vietnam hat on or something, right? Um, but that's just not the case either, you know. We're, we're talking 25-year-old, 24-year-old, 23-year-old guys and gals that have been through a lot of trauma. Um, so the one I've seen, I think, and I've even, you know, kind of, uh, obviously I'd be lying if I said I didn't have my my, uh, my issues as well. But, I, you know, survivor's guilt a lot of times I think is the one that guys always, are they question decisions um, you know, should have zig, basically, you know, layman's terms, I should have zigged when I zagged type of thing. Um, you know, they would be alive if I would have done X or I could have done this or trying to replay the situation. And the reality of it is that um, I don't believe that. You know, I, I'm, I grew up as a warrior. My mother used to say, today's a good day to die. When I was a kid, she said, that's what the warriors say. And um, I just think, you know, God does have a plan and it's people's calling, you know, and if you were in the military and you served in the military, you might not have stuck it out to retirement. You might think, Oh, I was just a mechanic or whatever, but it doesn't matter. You know, you're, you're trying to find yourself. You're trying to find your calling, but I look at it as, you know, your friends, they, you know, think of it that way. Today was a good day to die. And they, you know, that's what it was. They sacrificed their life. And um, willingly we were a volunteer army. No one was drafted. So there's a huge difference in that you volunteered you know, um, the Ranger Creed says, recognizing that I volunteered as a Ranger, fully understanding the hazards of my chosen profession. So that is something where that, that, that sentence in itself says today's a good day to die. I fully understand the hazards of my chosen profession. And I think that some of those creeds or some of those things you learn as a soldier or a Marine, um, they, they have a lot of meaning, you know, and, and I think that um, a lot of these things are overlooked and we just put this giant broad brush on everything. And that's not, that's not accurate. You know, you need to look at your personalities, really dwell on your buddies, you know, that's fine, you know, cope with it, how you need to cope with it, but, but celebrate them. You know, um, that's what we do in native culture. Everything's celebration, you know, like there's a time for mourning and when it's over, it's over, man. Like it's time to celebrate and, and, and celebrate that life and, and live for your buddies. You know, if you, if your buddy could come back for 10 minutes right now, who got killed right in front of you, he would tell you, dude, what are you doing? What? You're going to kill yourself over what? Like, over what happened to me? Like, no, dude, it's not your fault. It wasn't your fault at all. Live your life. 
learn something, have fun, live it for both of us. Like, and that's the, that's the perspective I take on. And I try to pass it on to people is you're not just living for yourself. You're living for all everyone. And, and I even try to like take that in with every veteran I come across or people I talk to, or I think about that. If I'm feeling down, um, I also think about it when I'm in the highest of highs, you know, when I'm in the middle of the mountains on a horse and I'm just sit there and I'm just like, almost like teary eyed of how amazing it is to be where I am. It's like, I'm doing this for everyone. It's not just me. I'm living for all the people who can't live. Um, and, and that, and then I narrow it down to my buddies, you know, and, and put personalities behind that. But, but, um, I just, that was just kind of, that's my perspective on life and my perspective on all of it. But hopefully, I, you know, I really hope that veterans can come away with that type of feeling versus the other side of it and then let the media or let pundits or what have you know, whatever get you down and let you think that it was all for nothing. Beautiful. Well, Jeremiah, I think that's the perfect place to, to end this conversation. We've been so many interesting places and they've all tied in together. You know, they really have. But, um, you know, this was... This was a message. Your voice was was the voice that needed to be heard. And, and I think that, you know, so many of these areas that you've touched on, you, you're not going to, even if you had the right people on a TV show, it's either going to get, what, 60 seconds or whatever. So, you know, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and, you know, sharing your thoughts. And, and I hope it reaches the people that need to hear it. That was awesome. Thank you so much for having me.